Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Carl Norman. I said, David, it's porn. <laughs> and he goes, what's it doing in the forest? <laughs> now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Bobby Thurston behind me now. And we are calling this week's episode Endurance. You know, we have so many stories in our archives, stories that were told a while back and that, you know, it takes us a while to like sift through stuff and get it all out there because we do so many amazing, incredible live shows. I was talking up front about how we have a bunch coming up, Washington, D.C., New York, Austin, Texas, Los Angeles, San Francisco. You can always find out more at riskdeshowcom slash tour. Also, a lot of the stuff from our archives ends up as bonus content on our Patreon. I think we've got something like over 20 hours of bonus stories over there at this point. And just a couple days ago, I uploaded a new check-in where it's just about 45 minutes or so of me uh, letting you know how things are going behind the scenes, how I'm doing. We're going to have some more interviews with various members of the staff coming up there soon and storytellers. I want to like sit down with some of our favorite storytellers and chat with them over at patreon.com slash risk. So become a member over there if you haven't yet. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a really extraordinary story from Nick O'Donovan. Now, like I was saying, some of these recordings are a little older. And at the time that this was recorded at our last Toronto show, Nick was identifying as Kelly O'Donovan. And they've been transitioning since this recording was made. But they're just 19 years old, had never shared a story on a stage before like this. It's really something. It's really, really impressive to hear someone so young in front of such a big audience and telling such a personal story. But before that, we're going to start with Drew Prohaska, who shared this story the last time that Risk was in Philadelphia. Now, Drew has a storytelling show of his own in uh, Beacon, New York. It's called The Artichoke, and I'm going to be telling a story at The Artichoke this Saturday, November 9th. If you're anywhere near, come on out. But here is Drew Prohaska now at the Risk Live show in Philadelphia with a story we call Tim and Sally. Girl, you are a star. So, um, I was a nervous kid. Like, I was a, a 
scaredy cat, like afraid of my own shadow. And, and I was really influenced by the movies. Like I had these liberal filmmaker parents who would let me watch anything, you know? And like at a very early age, I watched this made-for-TV movie called Adam. I don't know if anybody remembers this. It was about a little boy who was abducted uh, at a shopping mall and they found him chopped up like in a swamp. And I remember asking my mom, like, is that going to happen to me? You know? And she was like, well, not if you're home by dark. <laughs> and so, so like, I, I'd be playing with my friends and I'd watch the sun go down and I'd, I would just hear creepy guys sharpening their knives in the shadows, you know what I mean? And, and, and then we, I watched a, a made-for-TV movie called The Day After about uh, nuclear war. And, you know, following that, I just, I kept having nightmares about my, my family getting vaporized in this you know, nuclear holocaust. But the one that messed me up the most was I saw the movie Jaws for the first time when I was seven. And, like, I couldn't go into a lake or the deep end of the pool. Like, I, it, I was just paralyzed. Like, as soon as I saw that little boy in the movie, like, on the rubber raft, just turn into this fountain of gore, like, I knew... I was going to get eaten by a shark. It was a certainty. I was going to get chewed to death by something with gills, you know? And, um, like, it's statistically, it's irrational. It's an irrational fear, but irrational fear is the force that binds my atoms together, you know? And it's not easy to be the person in the family who's afraid of the water when you have two parents who are avid sailors you have a brother who's a sea captain and a scuba instructor and a sister who teaches marine biology and builds submersible robots for fun, you know? So, like, I decided that you can't hold on to these fears as an adult and still call yourself a man. And I'm a grown-ass man. Really. And... and so I decided every year I would take a trip somewhere and I would confront one of these fears. I went to Northern California. I was, I was afraid of heights. I went hang gliding. I, I bungee jumped off the bridge over the Zambezi River full of crocodiles in Zimbabwe. And six years ago, I booked a flight to Cape Town, South Africa. Because if you've ever seen the Air Jaws documentary on the Discovery Channel during Shark Week, you'll know that in Cape Town, South Africa, great white sharks can fly. They jump out of the water. So like, you know, in the panicky weeks, like uh, uh, building up to the trip, like um, I just started like Googling shark statistics, like frantically, you know, like, like how many people every year are killed by a great white shark? And it turns out the answer is uh, one. <laughs> one person every year. And I'm like, well, it's May, you know? <laughs> like, has it happened yet? You know? And, and like, I'm like, 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 when I was a kid, I remember like, somebody telling me like, what to do when you're attacked by a shark, and apparently, you know, they, they, they said you're supposed to like, just punch it in the nose, but now they say that just pisses them off. So, uh, <laughs> so like, I decided, what I, you know, if I ever found myself in the mouth of a great white shark, I would just soil myself with such volume that it spit me out and swam off in search of less pathetic prey, you know? So I get to Cape Town and I book a great white shark cave diving expedition on the same boat that was in the Air Jaws 
documentary because the crew of this boat had pioneered this method to get the great white sharks to breach out of the water. And they do this by towing a foam rubber seal behind the boat. And um, the reason why great white sharks jump out of the water in Cape Town, South Africa specifically, is because in the middle of the bay, there is an island just teeming with thousands of seals. It's called Seal Island. Really inspired name. And, and um, so a seal can outmaneuver a great white shark, so the great white sharks will swim down to the great murky depths, and they will wait uh, they, they, uh, for a uh, herd of seals... Uh, to swim overhead, and they'll wait for that uh, a seal to straggle behind. And then the shark will just launch itself towards that seal with such velocity that its entire body leaves the water. And any of these documentaries, it's always the same. Like you hear this bass drum beat going boom, 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 And it's like super slow motion. You see this seal just darting through the water for its dear life. And then you see this mouth emerge from the water behind the seal with these teeth like broken glass. And you see these eyes the the size of softballs just like roll back in their head. And your heart just starts going. And and the, the entire shark's body leaves the water and this giant tail whips around. And you see this this look on this seal's face like, no, as two and a half tons of great white shark just bear down on it with its teeth. And I saw this. I saw this while standing on the deck of the Air Jaws boat at sunrise. And it looked like this. Bloop. It was half a second. It was half a second. It was like a blur. Um, I traveled all that way. But like, but like, uh, <laughs> but like the, the captain, like after a while, we don't see any more breaches. So the captain, he throttles down the engine to this slow growl. And then um, they pull out this cooler full of chum and gore. And they just start slinging it out into the water. And they pick this giant tuna head out of the cooler and they pluck its eyes out with a knife. And they run a a rope through its eye sockets. And then they just throw the tuna head out into the water and they, they lower the shark cage and they tie it to the side of the boat. And then it's not long before the first dorsal fin appears. And then there, swimming around the boat, is Jaws. <laughs> and then another dorsal fin appears. It's Jaws 2. <laughs> and the captain, the captain goes, ah, yeah, I, don't, I can't do a South African accent. So, uh, South Africa. I, so you're going to get pirate. Uh, so he's like, he's like, He's like, ah, you're lucky. He's like, he's like we haven't seen a, a shark swim up to the boat in weeks. You know, you're lucky. And, and of course, my, I'm thinking, it's because they know I'm here. <laughs> and I just turn into this seven-year-old boy again. I just start to shake. And I find the exact center of the boat. I'm just trembling. And the captain comes up to me and he puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, Are you all right, mate? <laughs> And I said, no, I'm really not okay. 
And he says, what's the matter? And I was like, I don't think you fucking noticed, but there's two fucking great white sharks swimming around this boat right now. These are 14-foot sharks. And he looks at me, and he says, that, that right there, you're afraid of that. And I was like, yeah, dude. And he says, that, that's just Tim. And then he points at the other shark and he says, that there, that's just Sally. <laughs> and he just gave the sharks names. That's all he did. And all of the fear that was inside of me just sort of drained out of my toes at once. And I just took a breath and I slid on the scuba gear and I walked to the edge of the boat and I plunged into the shark cage. And for a moment, a minute, there's just bubbles and this red cloud of chum around me. And then all I could hear are my deep Darth Vadery breaths. And then Tim the shark blasts by the cage like a subway car. Like he's so big and just magnified by the water. I felt like I could have stood up inside of him. And then on the, on the ocean floor, I see this dark spot and it gets larger and larger and larger until it turns into the mouth from my nightmares as Sally the shark drifts past the cage and just starts nibbling at the tuna head. And I'm down there for 30 minutes and it's so quiet and it's so peaceful and it's just so beautiful watching these creatures and the weirdest thing was that I wasn't afraid for a second. Now, that evening I happened to have a friend who was in Cape Town at the same uh, time as me as a, on a business trip. And we, I uh, arranged to have dinner with her at a restaurant on the seaport. And I'm just still full of adrenaline and I just had the most incredible experience of my life. So I leave my hotel just after sundown and I'm walking, it's about a mile to the seaport. And I'm walking on this long stretch of road, and there's this homeless guy who starts walking next to me, and he says, um, can I have some money? And I only had big bills on me, so I was like, uh, I'm sorry, sorry, dude, I you know, can't help you. And he's just really persistent. Come on, man, can I have some money? Can I have some money? And I'm like, no, dude, no, can't help you, sorry. You know, and it just goes on like for a block, and then we turn this corner, and suddenly there's no people, and it gives me this shove. And he motions down, and he's holding this filed down piece of metal like a shiv, like a spike. And he says, don't do anything fucking stupid. Now, he was younger than me, and he was more athletic than me, and I'm not Chuck Norris. So I just looked at him, 
And I said, fuck you. Fuck you, you asshole. I hope you drown in shit. I gave him my money. I'm not an idiot. I'm not an idiot. But the only thing I felt like I could do was just hurl insults at him. I hope you get fucked by dogs. I hope old men piss in your mouth, you know? And then he holds the the shiv up neck high and he says, now give me your keys. And something inside me just told me, if I gave him my keys, this wasn't over. I would have to take him to my car or my hotel and show him, you know, where the keys go. (laughs) So I said, And he did. (laughs) And I was just standing there, just so fucking angry, just shaking on this street corner. I'm just feeling so many things at once. But the one thing, the one thing I wasn't feeling, the one thing I didn't feel throughout this entire ordeal was fear. Because that guy who had just threatened to kill me, that was just Tim. (laughs) You know? That was just Sally. Thank you. I knew I was going to get eaten by a shark. And then there is Jaws. And then another dorsal fin appears. It's Jaws 2. And I just start to soil myself. When I was 16, I started at a new school, and this was a big deal for me because I'd gone to the same school from when I was in kindergarten until the end of grade 10, and I went to the same school with the same kids for 12 years, and so I'd never had to make friends before. So when I started at this new school, I was completely terrified. It was 2,000 kids I didn't know, 45 minutes from where I lived, but my parents let me do it because there was this amazing arts and theater program that I was so excited about. And, you know, when I started there, I realized that all my fears about making new friends were completely valid. (laughs) I was completely just, I had no idea how to introduce myself to someone and be like, hi, my name is Kelly, nice to meet you, let's be friends. It didn't work. (laughs) But as soon as that arts program that I was talking about, as soon as it started, things completely turned around. I started making friends immediately. I remember on the first day, the very first thing that we did was the teacher said, okay, everyone, I'm going to have everyone stand up. And there were about 30 of us, so I was very comfortable. Same 30 kids, all classes, every day. I'm going to have everyone stand up and mingle around the room. Don't talk to anyone. Don't really do anything. Just mingle around the room. And when I say stop, turn the person closest to you, make eye contact, 
and await further instructions. And so that's what we do. We mingle around the room. We're, t- you know, we're not talking. We're just kind of like looking around. We haven't introduced ourselves to each other. None of us know each other. But the teacher says, stop. And so I stop, and I look to the person closest to me, and it's this guy who's taller than me. I can tell he's older than me. There were kids here from all ages throughout high school. And so we look at each other, and the teacher says, all right, introduce yourself to each other, and then look each other in the eye and describe their face to them in detail. And as a 16-year-old, this is the worst-case scenario. This is the absolute worst thing I could picture. That, like, someone just looking you in the eye and being like, your eyes look like this, and these are all your flaws. Oh, my God. But, you know, we do it. And so there's this guy, and he says, hi, my name is Brody. And the first thing I notice about him is, you know, he, he's tall. He's got these orange curls on the top of his head that are very cute. And he He's got this big smile that is so big that his eyes close when he smiles, you know, that kind of person. But so he, he just looks me in the eye, directly in the eye, and he says, okay, so you've got these big blue eyes, you know, they're just big, two big circles. And then you got this itty-bitty little nose, and then you got these big chipmunk cheeks, and then you've got this itty-bitty tiny little mouth, which I do. And I just look at him, and I'm just like... That is so sweet. (laughs) Oh my God. And then later in the day, he and I and this guy, Mitch, who is, you know, he's tall, he's even older. He's, you know, three years older than me or so. And he's got this big bushy beard. He's this big scraggly guy. And, you know, at first he's a bit intimidating, but, you know, as soon as you meet him, you realize he's the biggest teddy bear in the whole world. And these two guys become my closest friends immediately. So quickly, they are my best friends in the whole world. And I am so thankful because at this new school where I didn't know anyone and I had so much trouble making friends, They took me in, they made me feel so comfortable, and I had no idea that I could feel so close with people, so intimately connected with people. And they helped me make friends throughout the entire school, not just in our program, but the entire school. And they were my saviors, (laughs) Mitch and Brody, oh my God. I can't say how much I owe them. But throughout the semester, time goes on, we become best friends, and everyone in the program, we spend all day together, we have all our classes together, we spend every day just in the same classroom and then every weekend we all have big parties and time goes by and prom comes along and Brody and I sleep together oh my god but (laughs) uh, and then things kind of get weird some time goes by and we go back to school a few days later and he's not really making eye contact with me he's not really talking to me He's not really acknowledging me at all. And I talk to Mitch, and I'm like, what did I do? Oh, my God. <laughs> like, Brody's just completely ignoring me. He's, he's acting like I don't exist. He's my best friend. What am I supposed to do? And Mitch is like, bitch, I told you. I told you if you slept with him, you would ruin the friendship. And I said, I know, but I did it anyway. <laughs> so, you know, Mitch just tells me, just move on. Give him time. You know, just, just let it go. It'll figure it itself out. And so I do, and I give it some time um, until I go to the bathroom and I, you know, I do all the normal things. I sit, I pee, I wipe, and then I wait. And I'm like, hmm, what's that? And uh, I don't know if anyone's ever uh, taken a tampon out and then been like, how long was that in there? I don't remember. Um, I knew 
exactly how long this was in there because it was a condom. And it was a condom from like four days ago <laughs> when I had had sex with Brody. And wow, that was a surprise. <laughs> I had no idea that that was there. And so I gave him a bit of an earful. But I talked to Mitch, and Mitch is like, don't worry about it. Just laugh it off. It'll be fine. Just don't worry about it. And so I keep going about my business. Brody's still being a little bit weird about me, maybe a little bit weirder than he was before that whole thing. But um, a couple weeks go by, and I'm like, maybe I should take a pregnancy test. Just to be sure, I didn't think it was possible, really didn't think that that's what was going to happen. But guess what? It did. I take a pregnancy test, and it's positive. And I'm like, oh my god, this is not good. But uh, I, I talk to Mitch again, and I tell him, look, so remember that time <laughs> that I slept with Brody? And he's like, yes. And I say, wow. And I tell him, I took a pregnancy test, and it's positive. And I tell him, well, there's no way I'm going to have a baby. Nuh-uh. No way. So if I need to, I'll have an abortion. We don't have to worry about it. Brody doesn't need to know. And he's like, huh? Brody should know. And I'm like, Brody doesn't need to know. It's fine. <laughs> so we move along. And uh, I don't know how. I don't know when. But Brody actually does find out. And he's like, hey, we should probably talk about this. And I say, yeah, that's probably a good idea. So after school one day, uh, he gets in my car and we drive to this cafe that my friends and I went to all the time. And we get there and I'm nervous. My, my face is hot. My chest is cold. And I walk in and then I see Mitch. And I'm like, oh, thank God. Someone is on my side here. And I'm so happy that he's going to be there because I know that he's going to hold my hand throughout the whole thing. And then there's also this other girl there who's from our program, and I'm like, what are you doing here? But, you know, whatever, she's there. We sit down. I don't really know what's happening, but Brody's basically like, so, I don't think you're pregnant. And I say, oh, really? And he says, no, I think that you're faking it, and here's a pregnancy test. And he hands me a box with two pregnancy tests in the middle of a cafe in the middle of the afternoon. And he's like, I want you to go to the bathroom and I want you to take these tests and I want you to give them back to me. And I say, no, that's weird. I'm not going to do that. And he says, well, you have to. And I say, no, I don't. So I get up and I get in my car and I drive home. And I'm later texting with Mitch. And I'm saying, what was that? And he's saying, you know, I'm really sorry. I didn't know he was going to do that. You know, you don't, have, you don't owe him anything, but maybe you should take one just to be sure. Just take another one. It's been, you know, at that point, it had been another three weeks or so. And I say, no, I don't have to do that, but I do. On my way home, I stop at Shoppers, and I pick up a pregnancy test. And as I'm checking out, I ask the girl, hey, do you guys have a bathroom? And she says, no, but we do have a staff bathroom. And this is special circumstances. I'm going to let you use it. <laughs> So I go into the staff bathroom, take a pregnancy test, I pee on it, and then I wait, and it's negative this time. It's negative. And I have a lot of emotions, but mostly I'm like, yippee! Um, <laughs> and I remember I put this pregnancy test 
in the garbage in the staff bathroom. And I thought, there's going to be drama at the shoppers <laughs> in Guelph. But, you know, I, I, I leave the store. I give the girl a thumbs up on my way out. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I go home. And, you know, I, I, I don't really know what's going to happen next. But Brody's texting me. And he's saying, here's what's going to happen. I, I'm going to, tomorrow at school, give you the pregnancy test that I tried to give you earlier today. And if you take it, and it's positive, and I watch you take it, and you gave it, and I'm like, mm-hmm. but if you, <laughs> if you take it and it's positive, I won't lose respect for you. I'll just move on. If you take it and it's negative, I'm going to tell everyone that you faked a pregnancy. And if you don't take it, same thing. Tell everyone that you faked a pregnancy. And I tried telling him, you know, I had done my research. I found out that up to 70% of pregnancies that are valid at two weeks that will show up on a test won't show up at five weeks. That was about the time that that was going on. And I didn't lie about anything. I told him, you know, here are the facts. This is what happened. He wasn't listening to any of it. And so I made a decision. I remember sitting on the ground in my bedroom, crying, touching this gross peach carpet that I had. And again, my face was hot and my chest was cold and I made a decision. The next day at school, he comes up to me and he's like, you know, here you go, here are pregnancy tests. I'm gonna stand outside the bathroom. That girl from the coffee shop is gonna go into the bathroom with you and you're going to take these pregnancy tests. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to hate myself forever if I don't do everything I can to keep these friends that I've made. Because up until this point, I had no idea that friends could mean so much to me, that I had no idea that I could make friends who cared about me so much and who I cared so deeply about, and I would hate myself if I didn't do anything I could to prevent myself from losing them. And so I did a bad thing. I take the pregnancy test that he gives me, and I drop two red lines on it, I give it back to him, and he says, this isn't real. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and he says, uh, and you know, this guy who had been my best friend for months, he said, you know, go fuck yourself, Kelly. Go die. Go kill yourself. And I, you know, I get up. I'm like, I don't have to be here. So I leave school. I just, it's lunch, and I just get in my car and start driving away. And I tell my mom, like, oh, I'm not feeling well. I'm just going to go home. She said, that's fine. But apparently the police somehow got involved, the school got involved, and my parents got involved, and somehow I find myself in this little dinky vice principal's office having to explain everything from beginning to end to this short man wearing glasses and a shirt that's way too big, and my mom, who I've never felt more shame from, She had never been so disappointed in me as I was describing the awkward sex on the floor of my friend's basement that I had with Brody on prom night and the condom that I found four days later (laughs) and faking a pregnancy test. It was the most humiliating experience of my entire life. But, you know, all three of us agreed that I didn't have to finish the school year they let me finish the year online. 
and the implication was so that I didn't have to show my face in front of any of these people. And none of them spoke to me again. Not Mitch, not Brody, none of them. No one from the program, no one from the school. That entire summer and the rest of the school year, I was completely alone, hating myself, telling myself every day how horrible of a person I am for doing something like that, especially to such a good friend. But the next school year came around, as it always does, and I make another decision, this time one that I'm proud of. I decide to slap a smile on my face and to be the kindest damn person that I can, regardless of how anyone treats me, and that's what I do. I start the new school year, and nobody will make eye contact with me, nobody will acknowledge me, nobody will look at me, nobody will let alone talk to me, but I put a smile on my face, I bring cookies almost every day, and I tell everyone, hey, how was your summer? It was great, I'm so happy to see you, how are you doing? And eventually, I wear them down. <laughs> eventually, they have to talk to me, I have a bunch of classes with them. I remember the first day of English class in the new semester, I was the first person in the class, I sat in the back right corner, and the entire class fills from the opposite corner toward me, because nobody wanted to sit next to me. And Brody comes in late, and the only seat left is the one right next to mine. He comes in, he walks right over to the desk, and he scoots it on over away from me so that he wouldn't have to sit as close to me. But by the end of that school year, every single one of them looked me in the eye. A lot of them even talked to me. Many of them are now my close friends again. And I owe it all to being kind and relentlessly, just relentlessly forgiving because that's all you can ask for. All you can ask is for someone to forgive and move on and do better. And I've heard a lot of things about Brody since all of this. I haven't spoken to him. He hasn't spoken to me. I've heard that he's hurt other people, including Mitch. But I just hope that he learns what I have. I just hope that he learns to grow and to change and to do better. That's all I want to do. I just want to do better. Have a good night, everyone. I'm lost in the light. I pray for the night To take me, to take you to After so many words Still nothing's heard Don't know what we should do So if someone could see me now Let them see you This is Risk. This is Bahamas behind me. Now, this song has been in the queue for potentially being played on the podcast for, I think, seven years now. And then Nick suggested it to follow their story. Uh, Nick O'Donovan, at the time that the story was recorded, was Kelly O'Donovan. That story meant so much to me the week that my cat Donkey died. I went that weekend off into the mountains to hike and read a lot of Taoist 
literature and um, cry and all. And that story fit very much with what I kept reading that weekend. That is, in times of crisis, when you might have gotten off course, just center back in on what you value, what you love, what you believe in as your grounding, as the place from which you're growing. And so I, w- I was very grateful that this story was kind of, um, I don't know, ch- uh, championing, championing <laughs> that philosophy in my heart and soul that weekend. Anyway, before Nick, we heard an interstitial by our episode editor Jeff Barr and Risk fan and interstitial maker Robert Fulham. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from Carl Norman, who you can find on Instagram at K-A-R-L-E underscore Norman. And Carl told this one also at that Toronto show we did a few months back. Here is Carl Norman with a story we call Being in That Room. I'm in the woods with my best friend David, and we're behind his house, and I'm nine years old. And we would go back there all the time because his house was so different than mine. His parents were older. There's always vacuuming to be done, always chores to be done. And in the woods, we could do whatever we wanted. We could say crap. We could say shit. And that's what we were doing while we were fighting over who would be Panthro and who would be lion while we were playing Thundercats. <laughs> so we're talking, arguing, and David goes, what's that? And we both see it. It's almost a glowing blue rectangle off in the distance. And spending so much time in the woods, we would find stuff. We'd find a dead raccoon every so often. Once we found an old rusty knife that we were convinced was a murder weapon (laughs) and we'd stumble across the body someday. But this was different. And as we walked up to it and crouched down to look, looking back at us were three completely naked women swimming in a swimming pool in a dirty magazine. And... I said, David, it's porn. (laughs) And he goes, what's it doing in the forest? (laughs) And we couldn't care less what it was doing in the forest because we peeled each page off. I know, I know. (laughs) It was in the woods. It was very damp out there. And we peeled each page off of this filthy magazine, and laid them out on the ground in a line. I'm at one end, he's at the other end. (laughs) And I'm going, David, get down here, you have to see this. (laughs) And he he goes, I I think you should come here. (laughs) 
look at how big they are. And as excited as we were, I think we lost track of time because we hear his mom yell for his name, yell his name in the background, which means get home now. So we're stuffing these pages in our pocket and um, get back to his house and close the door to his room. And you know those plastic baseball card sleeve protectors? Yeah, you know. We fold these, these pages, these moldy pages, into tiny squares and put those in those. And then we both have our stash of porn at nine. And it was so thrilling because these, these women in the swimming pool in a dirty magazine had this square strip of pubic hair on each of them, of which I had none. And I th- was convinced that it grew in that way. <laughs> a little rectangle. It, it didn't, guys. <laughs> totally didn't. And as thrilled as we were to find this, there was also a crushing guilt attached with it because we were both born and raised Jehovah's Witnesses. So you've heard of Jehovah's Witnesses? Okay. So um, if you don't know, it's a very right-wing Christian organization, some would say cult, and there's a lot that's forbidden. Pornography, masturbation, lots. So... We were made even more certain at the meeting three weeks after we found this stash uh, when the talk was given on the platform, the dangers of pornography. And I am sinking lower and lower and lower in my chair as I hear the brother reading scriptures about, tear your eye out if it's making you stumble. Make my eye pass from seeing what is worthless. And I just look to my right, to my friend David, and he's looking at me, and we both know that, that our sin has landed. <laughs> and we both know that God knows that we're looking, and he also knows that we won't stop looking. <laughs> Which is so much worse. <laughs> and it, it's all we can talk about. So it's, we have a sleepover, and our pillows are next to each other. We're speaking in whispers. If swimming pool lady was your girlfriend... Would you kiss her? (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, I'd kiss her. (laughs) And we're nine, so we have no clue what the mechanics of sex are, but it turns into saying what we would do to being like, hey, would you let swimming pool lady put her, her mouth on your penis like this? Which was more than I bargained for. And... And this pornography coming into our lives uh, changed that whole friendship. And it went on for a while that way. I hate to say fooling around because that's disgusting, but there was a time when that was how we used those feelings to experiment on each other. And after about a month, it stopped, and I thought we had our secret. We both did. So I'm playing with my Jurassic Park toys in my room, and there's a knock at the front door, and it's the presiding overseer of my congregation. And he's in his suit with his briefcase, so it's official. And I have a split second where I go, oh, shit, this is about me. 
And then I soothe myself. It's not me. It's, he wants to talk to my dad about the Kingdom Hall stuff. And so I'm playing. And then my dad shows up at my door. And my dad's a really cool guy. He's very calm, always happy. But he looks as though he just had stitches removed. And he walks over to me. He kneels down face-to-face, sighs, and says, Carl, did you put your mouth on your friend David's penis? (laughs) And I can barely move. I'm looking at my dinosaurs, hoping that they have an answer. (laughs) And I'm trying to come up with something, like... David made me, I don't know that, no, that was bad, but, but I just lie. I just say, no, no. And he puts his fingers under my chin and raises my face to his so that I'm looking right in his eyes. And he goes, don't lie to me. David told his parents, his parents told the elders, don't lie to me. Now's your chance. So I say, Maybe, maybe once. <laughs> and he's pissed. He goes, okay, well, you're going to meet with the elders in a few days and you can talk it over with them. And he closes the door behind me, leaving me alone in my room. So three excruciating days later, and waiting for that meeting was almost worse than the meeting itself. It's like your beheading is scheduled and <laughs> you're just waiting for it to happen. I'm driven to the Kingdom Hall by my parents. I'm in my khakis with my penny loafers, and I've got my kid Bible. And sitting in basically what the conference room of the Kingdom Hall is, it's like a 10-foot table. There's four chairs on each side. And there's two 50-year-old men on one side and me on the other side, which I can barely reach the floor with my feet. I'm so young. And in front of them, they have articles, Bibles, reference works, all highlighted, It's not a good sign. And they say, well, Carl, you know why you're here. We're going to start with a prayer, and then we'll talk. And the prayer goes, dear, heavenly, majestic, wonderful, vengeful God, Father, Jehovah in heaven, please help us, your humble servants, to show young Carl Norman exactly how we can help him, using your word, the Bible. Please help him to correct his sins and get his life and his spiritual career back on course. Thank you, through your son Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, Carl, do you remember the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? I will say anything possible to get out of this room. So it's mostly nods. It's mostly yeses. Yeah, I remember it. Now, do you know why God destroyed those cities? Because they were bad, I say. Well, yes, but do you know what homosexuality is, Carl? And I don't, so I say so. Well, he destroyed those cities because what they were doing there was homosexual acts. That's when a man and a man lied together the way a married man and a married woman lied together. And Carl, that's what you were doing with your friend. And God finds that detestable. And that's why he destroyed those cities. At this point, 
I could melt and be fine. It's as though I'm in a miniature of the Kingdom Hall and God himself has pulled the roof off and is towering above me. He's pointing down at me and I can feel the hate coming off of his face. Just feel so ashamed and so disgusted and I'm picturing myself and my friend among those bodies at Sodom and Gomorrah. I can see the cities. I can see the illustrations in the publications and they have done a very good job at making me understand that I belong there for what I've done. And I don't remember too much more of the meeting. I'm sure I shook their hands. I'm sure I thanked them. And the silent drive home with my parents. And later that day or the next, I remember my mom saying, well, honey, I I hope that helped. And it did help in a way. Um, Not the way they meant. It made me make sure I never told anyone anything. (laughs) (laughs) And it built a bunker in me at that young age of nine that I could put the things that I actually felt and believed. Because none of that seemed bad to me at the time. I could put those private things that were just me, that were just my beliefs, in that secret spot. That sounds gross. Um, But (laughs) that's where I stored them. And there were consequences in our friendship. David and I weren't allowed to have sleepovers. The woods time was gone. And there was always a parent-supplied third friend. and any time the door was shut, his mom would you'd hear her footsteps come up and she'd open the door with a look as though to say, remember what you guys did? <laughs> Keep this door open. And we both developed our doubts from this time and stored them away secretly. And we didn't know what to do with them until we were teenagers. And David, bravely to his credit, he started fading before I did. He was 18 and he moved to a different congregation, moved out of state, and I'd hear gossip about him. I'd hear that he was dating a worldly girl, that's all of us, worldly, non-Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> and I was jealous of him. I was jealous that he was making his way out and I was still in. But the consequences were so big. See, when you say you don't believe, when you're not in it anymore, you're disfellowshipped. And that means that you're less than a stranger to your family, to your friends, to everybody you've ever known. It's a very closed off um, group. You're not supposed to associate with anyone who's not a Jehovah's Witness. So that's a big deal when you've been born and raised in it. It didn't stop me, however, from reading. I read a book by Richard Dawkins uh, called The Blind Watchmaker at 16 or 17. And I was like, oh shit, I was lied to a lot. I need to get out of this. But I couldn't. I I didn't have the courage yet. And I watched documentaries on North Korea. And I stuffed that away. And I watched and listened and read about Heaven's Gate. And I saw the same behaviors in those groups as the group that I was in. So many years later, about 25 years later, in my early 30s, I get a phone call after I haven't gone to the meetings in a while from one of the elders. And they say, no, Carl, we notice you haven't been there at the meetings. We want to talk to you. How have you been? And I tell the truth. I don't believe it anymore. I'm I'm not interested in going. At this point, I've been married and am separated and have daughters who I don't want to expose to this life. 
and I say so. And they say, well, meet us in the conference room of the Kingdom Hall. so that we can help you see the error of your ways. And I think back to that time, to that feeling, all that humiliation, and I say, no, I can't do that. I remember being in that room, and I don't like how that felt. Wait a minute, says the the elder says to me. So you're telling me that you would rather be disfellowshipped then have us help you? And I finally, after all those years, have the courage to say, yeah, I'd rather be disfellowshipped. And I think I have that forest porn to thank for it. Thank you. for this week's episode folks this is elbow behind me now and we just heard from carl norman who you can find on instagram at k-a-r-l-e underscore norman don't forget to follow us on twitter facebook and instagram at risk show on instagram and twitter i'm at the kevin allison and our school The Story Studio at thestorystudio.org is a great place to turn for storytelling training, whether it's one-on-one training over Skype or uh, in-person workshops in New York, Minneapolis, and Los Angeles, or our video courses that you can download and take at your own pace. Also, you can always find information about where Risk is appearing live next at risk-show.com slash tour. Finally, the Story Studio is extremely popular for our corporate workshops. We teach workshops in storytelling for businesses, you know, how to ensure that your communication around your career, your communication around the office is human and emotional and compelling in a narrative way. We've had clients like Google and Citibank and American Express and Pfizer, and that is all at thestorystudio.org. We take 
pitches for Risk Stories 24-7 all through the year, no matter where you are in the world, pitch us by going to the submissions page at risk-show.com slash submissions. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. You know, a lot of people don't know that in 1975, when the movie Jaws came out, the whole, you know, industry, the Hollywood industry and the country itself didn't know what a summer blockbuster was because the first summer blockbuster was Jaws. So in 1976, the big summer movie that came out was Jaws. They just decided, well, that worked last summer. Let's just put it out again this summer. Now, by 1976, I was six years old, and uh, Mrs. Murray, who was our neighbor from down the block, decided to take her son, who was also six years old, and me, to go see this movie everyone had been talking about for an entire year. And, you know, it's really, really not the best movie to take a six-year-old to. Now, she, she told myself and Greg, she said, if something happens in the movie that's just too scary for you, just put your hands over your eyes like this. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. I've only been to the movies once before. That was to see Pinocchio in Outer Space which did not quite end up doing as well as Jaws. It's the reason you've never heard of Pinocchio in outer space. Uh, So indeed, I'm watching the movie, and you know, if you remember the scene where the head pops out of the boat, oh my gosh, we were beyond, you know, the the putting your, your hands over your eyes. My legs just started moving. I just got up out of my seat and just ran out of that cinema. Farewell and adieu to you fair Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu you ladies of Spain. For we've received orders for to sail back to Boston. And so never more shall we see you again. (laughs) 